oftentimes in security and IT, because of that disconnect in the traditional IT world and ops world and development world, we kind of feel like the developers just don't get it or they don't want to do it or they don't understand it. I was incredibly surprised to realize that none of that's the case, right? We all are professionals. We want to do a great job. And the reality was they just needed to be given the right time and tools and techniques to do the right job. Welcome to OWASP 24-7, sponsored by the Open Web Application Security Project, improving the security of software. With support from Sonatype, a trusted partner for open source governance, management, and compliance. This is your host, Mark Miller. And you are... Hello, Wolfgang Gorlick, Filepoint. You've got an interesting DevOps story. Yes, yes. So a few years back, I want to say about three, four years ago now, I was responsible for IT. I was a security officer. And I ended up inheriting the applications team. So we had done a very good job on the IT side. We had started to implement a very fast rate of change and implement the good security controls and meeting the compliance standards and exceeding them. And the management came to me and they said, that's fantastic. Could you help us on a development side? And immediately I started digging in, found like uh, rugged DevOps, and try to get my arms around what DevOps really meant and how we could achieve it. So when you walked into the project, was it in shambles? Or what was the status of the project? I don't want to say it was in shambles. So we were in-house IT um, and in-house software development. And the, there were several key indicators that the dev team wasn't working up to snuff. The development cycle was very long, so it was a quarterly release cycle. Uh, oftentimes the changes would go in and they wouldn't meet what the end users wanted. And so they'd have to be pulled out or the changes would go in and I would review them on the security side and they wouldn't meet what I wanted, so they had to be pulled out. Sounds like a typical development cycle. Absolutely, absolutely. When I peeled back, that was exactly it, right? It was a waterfall model. So you had the, um, my predecessor going up and talking with the users and coming back, you know, like... Uh, coming down the mountain with the tablet in hand, here's what we need to build, guys, rallying the troops. And they'd build something, and three months later, out would pop something else that he'd go back up the mountain and say, here's what we built for you. And lo and behold, 17% of the time, it wasn't what they wanted. And they had to redo the change, and they had to wait a whole other quarter. How hard was it to get developer buy-in for a change in methodology? Uh, I didn't have too much difficulty with the developer buy-in. I was very relieved and very impressed with the willingness and the enthusiasm to mature the process, to do the right thing. I think oftentimes in security and IT, because of that disconnect in the traditional IT world and ops world and development world, we kind of feel like the developers just don't get it or they don't want to do it or they don't understand it. I was incredibly surprised to realize that none of that's the case, right? We all are professionals. We want to do a great job. And the reality was they just needed to be given the right time and tools and techniques to do the right job. When you look back and you see what you started with and where it ended up, 
What was the process like? How did you make the transition to the new methodology? The first thing we did was pause the current release, and we communicated out because of this change that we were actually going to slow down before we sped up. So we got buy-in from our stakeholders and our customers that we were going through a transition, there would be a slowdown period. During that period, the developers and I worked very closely to figure out what our new rhythm would be, what our new checkpoints would be, how work would get done. And we also provided them um, excessive training and, and new software tools so they could be more efficient and more effective. And throughout the first six months, and even into the first year, we continued to deliver slower line by line, code by code, than we were in the beginning, previously. However, because we brought the error rate down, and because we were more in tune with what the customer really needed, we found we actually needed to produce less code to deliver more features, more functionality, and have a happier end user. So within the first six months, we slowed down, took time for reflection, and paused. Next six months, we started refining that, and you're... Uh, into year one, year two, year three, we really picked up momentum. It seems like in that process, a medium-term process, six months to a year, you'd be getting really hard pushback from the business end to say, how come you're not moving stuff out the door? In, in many cases, I think that would be the case. In this scenario, the end users were already, and the business was already very frustrated because they saw that they were putting a lot of time into a process that one in five times had to be redone. They had to wait three months more before they saw it. Even though we reset expectations and you know, reprioritize what features we're going to deliver, the fact that those features were now coming within weeks instead of months, and eventually within days instead of months, shifted that perspective. So at the end of the day, right, if I'm in business, I care about getting my job done. I really don't care about you, the developer, how much effort you put into that, right? I care about me. What's the result? And if I can shift the perspective and increase the result, the impact for the consumer, it doesn't matter if my developers are taking longer to produce code. So you started with a cycle where the customer was checked in with every three months. Correct. Got it down to, did you check in once a week? Uh, Checked in once a week. We also rearranged simple things like seating and communication flow. The, um, you don't the, hear about that much. Yeah, you won't, right? Because you you think about, well, maybe we need a messaging board, and maybe we need a Kanban board, and maybe we need um, a SharePoint, and you know this and there. Maybe we just need to sit the developers next to the end users. So as they're, hey, take a look. You got a second? So we instituted a policy where we what we called work where it works, and we gave the developers three different workstations. A little bit costlier but we gave them one embedded right next to the end users that they were working with day in and day out. So when they're collaborating and they needed to you know, really get in the nitty-gritty and bounce ideas back and forth, they were embedded within those end users. Very much the high-tech anthropologist viewpoint. We gave them one uh, office with the rest of our technical staff. So when they went back and they had to communicate with the IT folks, changes system upgrades and whatnot, they were embedded with the IT folks. And then we also gave them another office at their home so that they can continue to have a good work-life balance, and we left it up completely up to them as long as they're meeting their, their deadlines and delivering results. 
where they wanted to work. What didn't work? What, what did you try that didn't work? In opening the door to the end users to deliver changes, what we effectively did was co-opt key stakeholders throughout the organization and made them part of the dev team, right? We were like, hey, you're now our business analyst. You know what works and what doesn't. In the early days, my thought was, hey, if you're out there and anyone comes up to you and they have a feature or requirement, we can fix that. Let's do that. In the beginning, that created a bunch of friction because this feature conflicted with that feature and it was a little bit too open, too democratic. So we filtered in and we identified key people and made them part of our dev lifecycle, even though they were within different business units and had them the central point of communication. So that was really the... The thing that didn't work was, hey, anyone can submit anything in any change. Since you completed that project, what did you take away that you're using in your newer projects, your recent projects? One of the things that fascinates me about the software development world is that it has a very rich and robust lexicon for communicating change and artifacts for moving a change process, right? In IT... Uh, which grew up at the same time as development, we've always been very focused in on putting it in once and doing it right and not having to touch it again. Right? Whereas developers, all, the, all they do is manage change. Security as an independent discipline, of course, is, is very much nascent. So one of the things that fascinated me uh, about DevOps and about development is this concept of story-driven development, right? Having the story, the narrative and using that story as a talking point to get the business analysts online, the IT, everyone who's the stakeholder on the same page. And then completing those stories over a cycle to burn that change management down. Mm-hmm. Coming to security, one of the things that we are today struggling with as a security industry is how do we communicate necessary changes and how do we align various different partners and parties to make those changes. So one of the things that I've been working on today is this concept of what I'm calling story-driven security, which is very much like having a use case, but instead of listing what a user would do, listing what an attacker would do, and instead of talking to how developers are going to enable that functionality, how the security team and the allies within the security function are going to prevent the attacker for each one of those tactics along that path. And then one step further, much like test-driven development, how can we test each one of those security controls down that path to ensure that it really would stop the attacker and that when the fire alarm goes off, people know how to exit the building and all those wonderful things that happen during an incident response process. So what I carried forward from managing development into managing a security function is let's look at the great success software development has had in managing change and let's leverage that for things like security functions. When we're looking at the tool chain that you're having to use to do this, you got a lot of scripting. Are there automation tools? What are you using? My DevOps shop was entirely Microsoft, which is a little bit unique. And we leveraged uh, Visual Studio very heavily. We also leveraged um, PowerShell to spin up the OS instances and whatnot so that we can provision VMs. We very much built a private cloud infrastructure where the developer could click a button and get the resources they need to test things out. To push out code to production, we are utilizing System Center with Orchestrator, and we also had a manual process 
this was in a financial world, right? So in a financial world, segregation of duties was very important. So we'd automate it all the way up to the point where we handed it off to IT ops, and then IT ops would then have to make that change in production. And then that change going into production would also be scripted so that all you had to do was click a button and run those scripts. You are the co-founder of OWASP Detroit. Right. When did that start? OWASP Detroit started three years ago. And it started it up shortly after this conversion of the DevOps, um, coming from an IT ops and separate dev function into the DevOps world. It occurred to me that all these artifacts and all these structures we had built for security completely go out the wall uh, and are pretty much out of the chain of events when you're developing software and exposing things over the internet, right? We have, we have built this whole perimeter concept in network security, and meantime, the developers have way outpaced what we're able to secure. So I reached out to a good friend of mine who recently joined uh, Viapoint, the company I'm with, and he has a lot of web app experience, and he was a developer. He broke code for a living. He was also a pen tester. And I said, look, this is what I'm concerned about. He goes, well, have you looked at OWASP? And so I started looking. I'm like, that, that's exactly what we need. And so together we formed the OWASP Detroit chapter, and we've also been contributing a track to the security conference that goes on Detroit, Converge and B-Sides Detroit. It's, just, it's clear to me that the future of security will be software security. Right, as we move to the cloud, as we begin to virtualize everything, the bottom line is, can we secure the software? Can we secure the development lifecycle? And that will take precedence, I believe, in terms of do we have firewalls and do we have an IPS IDS and do we have eyes on screen? It's interesting. Josh Corman looks at it from a different viewpoint, doesn't he? It starts at the bottom with the infrastructure itself. And you're, you've investigated Rugged, so you know what Josh is doing. Yes. So how does that fit in with perimeter defense and the way that the current security model is done? Well, here's the thing. You, as the ball continues to move and technology continues to develop, you can never roll back, right? We can't just say, all right, from now on, I'm never going to put a firewall in place. But at the same time, those things become table stakes, right? They're just things that have to be in place. The security industry, specifically security as education, is producing all these fantastic graduates who are very, very good at selecting hardware and configuring routers and configuring firewalls, but can't read a line of code and don't really know much more about securing a web app other than I opened up port four, you know, 80 and 443 and I've got SSL so I must be safe. The big thing that I'd like to see the industry go for is more secure software itself from the beginning within the development. Correct. Software. That That's just it, right? We can't, if we keep focusing on the perimeter and ignoring this growing software development uh, effort where you've got a defect density and it only takes one or two errors to create something like OpenSSL, which was just announced, what, yesterday. It's readily apparent that we have to embed security in each step from the time we say we're going to launch a new project to the time we're developing our features and doing feature-level security requirements to our threat models all the way down the application chain. Because only that way, when the software goes live, when there is a breach, and there will be, that's just the nature of what we live in, is that software defensible? And can the organization recover from that breach without having a major impact on themselves and their clients? In the medium future, say two to three years for 
where security is headed, software security. What are you seeing? In two to three years, as, as security development life cycle begins to mature, for the larger organizations, people have already gotten DevOps, people have already gotten rugged, they're going to be in a very good spot, right? Because the word's gotten out. There are OWASP chapters all over the place. Um, application pen testing has become part of our lexicon. Uh, it's something we're getting more and more requests for at Viopoint. And uh, that is great to see that level of maturity. But at the same time, what kind of concerns me is now we've got the Internet of Things and these one or two or three person companies, which you throw up something on Kickstarter, you get cash, you purchase some equipment, you add your software to it, and you ship it. And again, we've got all the same problems, right? These are people that uh, are building a product, are building a new business, which is fantastic, but may have not have heard of OWASP may not know what OS Top 10 is, may not know how to check their code. And there really isn't, at this juncture, um, a lot of education outreach to these brand new security com- or brand new software companies that are very small and yet will be very pivotal in our future. It's interesting you say that. I was hearing about an app yesterday that was in the Google App Store in like the top 10 that did absolutely nothing. It was supposed to be a virus scanner, Oh, and when yes. you hit the button, the check mark turned green, and <laughs> your your mobile app, your, your mobile phone was safe. Oh, no. And so this made it into the top ten in the Google Store. Wow! Until finally, somebody discovered and really looked at it. And said, this thing does nothing, literally nothing. Yes. And people paid four ninety nine each oh, for it. Was a paid app too. Yeah, fifty thousand dollars later. Somebody pulls it, they pull it from the app store. But yes. the point of that is, who is verifying this stuff? Who's ultimately responsible to make this stuff safe and functional in this case? Correct. And at this point in time, we don't have a function for that, right? Either in the industry or in regulations. Where does that leave SafeCode, BSIM, OWASP, the, the organizations that are trying to do something about it? It's not like they can mandate a standard. What's going to be the process? And I, I, we're just talking out loud here. What's going to be the process to actually get all these ideas to work? We need to do a better job in outreach. We talked earlier about tooling. We need to do a better job in tooling. Uh, one of the main leaps forward I had uh, from a DevOps perspective is when checking for security problems is as easy as checking to make sure my code compiled. Right when it was right within the tool, they clicked the button and did static analysis. Now, you and I both know that doesn't catch everything. You know, it only catches a small fraction. But the minute that's there and in front, that raises the level of awareness. We need to do more in terms of getting to the developers where they're at, how they're working, and embedding it in their workflow. I think Jeff Williams talks about. It's either Jim Routh or Jeff Williams talks about the idea that vulnerabilities should show up in your code just like they would a misspelled word in Word. Yeah, agree completely. And that's an interesting concept. Can we develop a tool that notifies you immediately that something's off? Yes. I was spending some time with um, some software developers up in Montreal, and they had an interesting take, right? So we all know clean code and this concept of code smells. So when I check and I see some weird errors... Um, there's three or four different things that, you know, if it's the stylings off or the indents off, if it's a code smell, clearly the developer was rushing this area, there's probably a problem. And they made the point that with the 
um, Apple go to fail bug, independent of security analysis, independent of static analysis, if they're following clean code principles, the code smells of missing parens and bad indentation should have brought the attention of the developers to that area. So again, that goes back to, to my thought, and it's very much in line with the rugged concept, that quality is quality, whether it's a security bug or a stylistic bug or a logic bug. Quality is quality, and if we can convey the lack of quality to the developers, they're going to act on it because they want to do a good job. I don't think anybody goes to work one day and says, you know what, I'm going to hose this code. Absolutely. We're all professionals. You just brought up something I never heard of or even thought of is like the code smells. And when you said it, you know, as an old time developer, you know, another lifetime, you're exactly right. If I'm rushing through this thing, screw the formatting, screw what's going on here, I'm going to get this thing hammered out and get it out the door. Clean code, and there are certain stylistic checkers in place. So it's like FXCOP on .NET side, which is where I'm a developer. I the gentleman I was hanging out with uh, was Objective-C, and I can't remember. But there is a tool that he was using. There's a PHP analog. These are stylistic checkers to make sure the right thing's in the right time. I think it's cool. I mean, I, I've never thought of that before. Yeah. I mean, that, that will get you pretty far in static analysis. The other thing in terms of life cycle, if you think about Scrum, right, I'm sure you've heard this. So if your Scrum burndown chart is pretty static, and then suddenly it drops really quick, well, obviously, they just rush something in to meet a deadline, right? Right under the wire. So people who are very deep in Scrum will also tell you that's where they'll stop and pause. And in the code for that story, that's where they'll investigate it very closely for logical bugs and security bugs. Because, again, people, that's where people are rushing. That's where the mistakes are made. What would the perfect tool be that, that would integrate into the developer environment that would alleviate a lot of the problems that we're talking about? We are assuming we're in the SDL. We're assuming we've got buy-in for security requirements. We're assuming at some point before the project is done, a risk assessment has been completed that this project is going to mean X, Y, Z to the customer or the business or whatever, and so here's our risk profile. And now the developers have begun work. The key thing in the beginning is the ability to model not only functionality, the use of the tool, but also maliciousness, the abuse of that feature. So the ability in, as we're mapping out the code, and if you think of like test-driven development where you're saying, okay, here's my assertions to make sure the functionality is in place. Also modeling the abuse, we can say, here's my assertions to make sure someone can't abuse this and maliciously use this feature. So that's done. Now we've got our assertions, and now the tests for our code are testing not only how people are using it, but also testing to make sure that this code is not opening up the app to misuse. So that would be a good thing. And then as they're checking in the code, integrated static analysis is going back to OS Top 10 and common threats, looking for code smells, and looking for logic flaws. So now we're past the design stage, now we're into the implementation stage. Then in verification, when the code is tested through QA, also having QA tools, so a QA person can also test four known conditions that would lead to that code being attacked or that feature being attacked. At the same time, they're testing for conditions to make sure that the story is accurate and people can use it. It's, it's interesting because you've turned 
I wouldn't say you've turned the model on its head, but essentially you're going at it from a different angle than I've heard before, which is what are the attack scenarios? Right. Let's write the attack scenarios into the IDE itself. Correct, as part of the test cases. And I think it's, it's all about keeping security top of mind. If we really want to create apps that are going to be attacked, and we're going to put them in an environment where we know they'll be opened up to people who are going to be using them maliciously, we need to spend a portion, not the majority, of course, because we're building our apps to make money and to, to deliver features, but we need to spend a portion of our effort ensuring that that malicious activity cannot be completed and that the code will stop that malicious activity and log along those lines. So when it gets to IT ops and it gets to SecOps, the people who are maintaining this, they can protect and maintain it. You have been listening to OWASP 24-7 with your host, Mark Miller. OWASP 24-7 is sponsored by the Open Web Application Security Project, improving the security of software. With support from Sonatype, a trusted partner for open source governance, management, and compliance. 